Good morning, church. It is um, it's great to be here. It's an honor to be able to share God's word with you this morning. Um, Pastor Tony sends greetings from General Assembly. Um, they're just having a great time over there and reconnecting with um, old friends and also hearing what uh, the church um, of the Nazarene is doing worldwide. So I just ask that you would pray for them, pray for um, the people from our church who are there, um, pray for our global church that we would continue to seek God's kingdom and be a light in, in the world. So um, today I kind of want us to start using by our imagination a little bit. So I'm going to ask that um, I'm going to read a story and you kind of try to put yourself in that scenario, in that place for just a moment. If you want to close your eyes, if that's weird, that's fine. If you just want to look at me, um, as long as it's not too awkward, um, that's fine too. The year is 2026. The Democratic People's Republic of North Korea has proven to be militarily superior and far more nuclear advanced than anyone could have ever thought or predicted. Their vicious warfare has allowed them to take over most of Asia, Australia, as well as the Pacific coast of the U.S., including California. You and your family have been put on ships and resettled somewhere in mainland China now controlled entirely by the North Korean Empire. You've been ripped away from everything you knew and cherished. You now find yourselves in a foreign land with foreign tongue, foreign culture and foreign foods, customs and faith, or lack thereof. You are now a minority. You have no power, no authority. You have no voice there no status or wealth. What's left of your pride and identity as an American is really all you have. You've managed to obtain a cell phone that has been hacked to um, bypass government restrictions and have limited access to the internet where you have anxiously been awaiting news from the U.S. concerning your fate in this new land and what hope is left for you and your family to be rescued and brought back home. All you can think about every sleepless night as you beg your mind for sleep is when and how will your country respond? Will they come with all military might to rescue you? Will they ignite a revolution from inside to overthrow the Korean rule? Will the Allies create a coalition to bring down the vicious empire? Will they try to infiltrate and get rid of the cruel dictator who has become the most powerful man on the world? Till one night it finally happens. You receive what you've been waiting for, a message from the White House to the citizens who have been exiled and resettled. My fellow Americans, those of you who have been taken captive and find yourselves in a foreign land and under foreign rule, after spending many months meeting with the nations and the world's top leaders and diplomats who carefully considered and evaluate every possible strategy and solution to our current state, today I, the President of the United States of America, am asking, no, urging you to build houses and make yourselves at home. To marry 
and to have children, to put in gardens and to eat what grows in that country. Encourage your children to marry and to have children so that they're so that you'll thrive in that country and not waste away. Make yourselves at home there and work for the country's welfare. Pray for the nation's well-being. If things go well for that nation, things will go well for you. Rest assured, you are forever in our prayers. May God bless you and may God bless the United States and the citizens of the United States of America. So how do you feel in this moment? Is that what you expected from your government? How do you respond? Will you follow the president's instructions during this time? Is it just too hard? Is it too much? Why? Why would your government ask such a thing? Will we ever be free again? So the people of Israel experienced a time very similar to the scenario I asked you to paint in your mind. Um, when they were conquered by a foreign empire, ripped away from their land and from their culture, from their customs and traditions. We know this as the Babylonian rule or the Babylonian exile. And they find themselves in a culture that's not that not only entirely different from their own, but actually opposed and in direct opposition and hostile towards their own. And it's here where Israel finds itself defeated and perplexed and just asking what, when, how will God respond? How will God show up to rescue and redeem his people? And then we get that answer. They get that answer. Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, sends a letter to the exiles. And we read it in Jeremiah 29. And this is what the prophet Jeremiah says to the people of Israel. This is the message from God of the angel armies, Israel's God, to all the exiles I've taken from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and make yourselves at home. Put in gardens and eat what grows in that country. Marry and have children. Encourage your children to marry and have children so that you'll thrive in that country and not waste away. Make yourselves at home there and work for the country's welfare. Pray for Babylon's well-being. If things go well for Babylon... Things will go well for you. Jesus, I come before you today, and I just ask that you would speak to us. That out of your word, out of the scripture, you would speak directly into our hearts and into our lives. Lord, and all of those things that are just my own thoughts, my own words, that those would be quickly forgotten. But in the ways that you're speaking... That those were stay, that we would be able to hear you, and um, we would grow in who, into who you are creating us, or have created us, and are shaping us to be. We love you, Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen. So, so why, are, 
why are we talking about this? I mean, what can we today as followers of Jesus who happen to live in a place like San Diego, in a country like the U.S., learn from this event that happened thousands of years ago to a people so far away? Well, many people who are way smarter than me um, believe that there's much to learn from this time of exile. Actually, it's interesting how we today find ourselves in a, in a similar, very similar place in many ways. But how? You say, we live, we live in America. This is a home of the brave, right? Land of the free. No one has ever conquered us. Well, yeah, maybe we haven't been conquered. But, but things have changed dramatically in the last uh, few decades. Our world is changing at light speed. It will continue to change. It's inevitable. We can't stop it. We've tried, but it won't. We can't stop it. I mean, it doesn't really matter how much we complain and whine and how we remember the good old days. Like, those are not coming back. Things are changing. And there's really not much we can do. Um, One of the ways that it's changed is that in the last century... We have evolved from being a Christianized culture to being a postmodern, post-Christian culture. So we like to take, you know, we like to think and take pride that, that America was founded to be a Christian nation. And although, you know, many Christian scholars would disagree depending on what Christian really means. Um, I mean, yeah, and if we look past the Native American genocide and the horrific realities of slavery, our country was founded on Judeo-Christian values and morals. But Christianity today is in massive decline in the West. You know this, particularly in Europe, but also here in America. People who claim to follow Jesus have moved from being majority to a minority for the first time. So my parents, your parents probably, grandparents, grew up in a Christian majority culture if they grew up in this country. But that's not the case anymore. Most people, at least my age, don't really subscribe to any faith at all. Sociologists or or people who study religion would call them the nuns because they really don't believe anything. Another thing that's happened is that Christianity has moved, or Christians have moved from being center to fringe. In most of American history, Christians led or held positions of power. Most politicians and lawmakers, institutions of higher education like Harvard and Princeton were, were Christian. But that's not, that's not really true today. Pastors, were respected and were of high standing in society. They weren't seen as weird or ignorant. They weren't mocked on TV and in the media. Ten years ago even, you know, Christians were viewed maybe as strange or behind the times, but not really as dangerous, not really as extremist. That's how many times Christians are viewed now. Judgmental, hold the low ground on morality, exclude, oppress. And we as followers of Jesus find ourselves for the first time as a minority, even in this country. 
And if we're honest, we, we clearly don't really know how to be and how to live faithfully during this time. Many churches won't even recognize that this is a fact, let alone know how to deal with it. And, and when a minority finds us place where we kind of do now, there's, there's two main ways that we tend to respond. The first one is separatism. Separatism is completely separating from the culture and hiding from everything and everyone that is different. Right? So, so a good example is maybe like the Amish people who um, believe that the best way to remain faithful to God is to withdraw, to cut all ties with the outside world and only stay in a community with people who believe and think are just like them. So that's kind of separatism. It doesn't really look that way most of the time. Um, I think today separatism looks more as, a, you know, the very legalistic church that is opposed to everything that's non-Christian or secular, cuts ties with everything that doesn't look or feel or believe the same ways. Maybe it looks like only, um, have, only listening to Christian music um, and demonizing all the other forms of entertainment, maybe only Christian movies, maybe only, maybe everyone you know is Christian and you don't really care to know anyone outside um, who isn't. Um, or maybe you only befriend people in order to turn them into what you want them to be. So, so that's, that's one response. I think at least in, in my age group, people who are younger, this, this doesn't really happen that much. I think our response has mostly been, in a place like San Diego, more like syncretism. Syncretism is assimilating, blending into the culture and to the society around us. So that means that there's really no difference between a follower of Jesus and someone who doesn't really know Jesus. We live the same way, we think the same way, we buy into the same consumerism, nationalism, standards of beauty, sexual lifestyles, we have the same type of entertainment, we hold the same political views, we treat and relate to people in the same way. There's really no difference. I mean, we might have certain beliefs that will um, make us come to church a couple Sundays a month, but other than that, our life is pretty much the same. So those are the two major options, but I want to suggest that maybe there's a third option. Maybe we don't have to live into separatism or syncretism as people of God. And I want to suggest that this, um, many, many scholars have called this the creative minority. So, so to illustrate or to really make a point here on what this would look like, we're going to look at the book of Daniel. Um, so you can go to Daniel 1 and follow me. I won't be reading straight out of the, out of the um, scripture, but I'm, kinda, I'm gonna summarize and I'm gonna tell the story of what's going on in specifically chapter 1. So, Daniel is a Jewish young man who has been exiled from, Bab- from Israel to Babylon. And the king of Babylon at this time is King Nebuchadnezzar. So Nebuchadnezzar decides that he's going to take young men from Jewish nobility who are healthy, handsome, intelligent, 
well-educated, good prospects for leadership positions in the government, pretty much perfect specimens. So everything that some of you ladies write down as desired qualities on your dating app, right? The king ordered them to be indoctrinated in the Babylonian language, the lore of magic and fortune-telling. They were served from the same menu as the royal table. So they got... They were able to um, partake in the best food and finest wine. And after three years of training, they would be giving positions in the king's courts. And then their names were changed from Jewish ones to Babylonian ones. So basically, they're trying to get rid of their identity and give them a completely new one. So to Daniel... They say, you will no longer be Daniel, which means God is my judge. Now you will be, hard word, Belteshazzar, which is keeper of the hidden treasures of the Babylonian god Bel. So not only did they attempt to get to rid them of their identity, but they also gave them a very comfortable, affluent, honored position and identity in this new Babylonian culture. But then Daniel does something very interesting. It says that Daniel decided that he would not defile himself with the food and the wine of the king. Instead, he requested for him and his friends to eat only vegetables and drink only water. So Daniel decided that he was going to be vegan, right? Not vegan today where you can like go out to a restaurant and like order a, um, what is it, medium rare Steak made out of soy and birdseed or whatever. Um, he, actually, he actually did eat just vegetables, legumes, and water. Daniel knew that he couldn't change his situation. He knew that his land and his, and his people had been captured or conquered and driven from their land and from their culture. And now he's living in a foreign land and he had to learn their ways and even their names were changed. But... But he drew the line on his diet. He asked to maintain the dietary laws of his people so he would not have to eat the meats and wines offered to the Babylonian gods. And it says, if you keep reading, at the end of ten days, they looked better. They looked more robust than all the others who had been eating from that royal menu. And God gave these four young men, Daniel and his friends, Knowledge and skill in both books and life. In addition, Daniel was gifted in understanding and all sorts of visions and dreams. At the end of the time set by the king for their training, the head of the royal staff brought them into Nebuchadnezzar. When the king interviewed them, he found them far superior to all the other young men. None were a match for Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. It's interesting that scripture still uses their Jewish names, although they had already been changed. Anyways, they took their place in the king's service. Whenever the king consulted them on anything, on books or on life, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his kingdom put together. So we can see in this story that Daniel and his friends took very seriously the instructions by Jeremiah, that letter that they had received. They were to settle down. They were to lay down roots. They were going to be there for a while. They understood that. They were to engage 
and influence that culture, but for good. So, so the life of Daniel is a perfect example of how to live in exile. So scholars define this term creative minority as a group of people who adapt, innovate, stick together, and actually bless the host culture. This is how Daniel and his friends decided that they were going to live while they were in exile in Babylon. And the truth is that it's hard to live this out without getting sucked into our society, to the ways of America and the ways of San Diego. But we as followers of Jesus are called to live in this tension. We don't separate or escape. Rather, we have strong links to the outside world, all while remaining, remaining true and faithful to our faith. And we strive to become people who are creative, and as a community, we work for the good, the healing, and renewal of society and culture. So what made Daniel and his friends so brave during their time in exile? Why were they able to stay true and faithful to God even during this time? Well, because Daniel knew who he was before anyone tried to tell him any differently. Even though he lived in Nebuchadnezzar's house now, he knew that he belonged to Yahweh. And this knowledge and understanding shaped his calling even in a foreign land. He was torn from his land, from his people and from his culture, but he was not torn away from the love of God and his identity as a child of the Creator. Their identity as people of God was what allowed them not only to stay true in their small stuff like the Jewish dietary guidelines, but also when it came to the big stuff like who were they going to worship? Who were they going to serve? If you read on um, the, the book of Daniel, you realize it's a few times when this got him into trouble, right? There was a time when Daniel was not willing to give up his custom of praying three times a day to the one and only God of Israel. Even when it meant being thrown into a den of lions for doing so. But he was so committed and convicted and he knew who he belonged to, that he was not willing to budge. So he was thrown into a den of lions. And we read the story, God shut their mouths. And he was chill. And he was survived. And this made the king, I mean, it surprised the king. Right? Obviously. There's another time when, when Daniel's friends... Um, they weren't willing to bow down to a statue that Nebuchadnezzar made for himself, this huge golden statue, and they said, we're not going to worship that. We worship one God. So Nebuchadnezzar was angry, and he wanted to turn, uh, throw them into a furnace of fire. And this is what they said to him. God is able to deliver us from the fire. But even if he doesn't, we're not going to worship you. We're not going to... Worship your gold statue. So, they're thrown in. 
And Jesus literally shows up in that oven, in that furnace. And he rescues them and he delivers them even from the slightest smell of the smoke on their clothes. So even smell like smoke because Jesus is there. They knew their identity and did not compromise who they were, even in the face of danger and even in the face of death. So if we want to know our calling and our purpose, we must not only start in this, but we must live in this truth that we, that you, are the beloved of God. If you want to know yourself and why your life really matters, we need to know our maker, who truly knows us and fully loves us. Knowing Jesus is not just about getting into heaven one day. Knowing Jesus is an invitation to know yourself through the love of God. This will change how you understand your identity and therefore how you live your everyday life. Following Jesus is no easy path for anyone at any time. You know this. But it's even harder when we try to do so as though we live in one place when in fact we're living in another. This is the temptation of the promised land delusion. If we understand that exile is now home, we embrace and live into our vocation in a far more realistic and constructive way. Though we understand that we are an exile, we live in America, but we don't belong to America. We belong to Jesus. Our society may not love us, may not understand us, but Jesus does. Our society doesn't determine our value and our worth. Jesus does. And you are immeasurably valuable to him. And, and this country and, and this city, San Diego, might dictate the situation you're in, but you will decide what you're going to do with that. And this will be directly impacted by knowing your identity and who you are in him. And we find ourselves in a very odd time at the moment. I don't know if you've been paying any attention to the news at all. But, but our world is, what's happening in our world is not normal. It's unprecedented. It's never happened before. And it's a mess. And, and if we're honest, the church really has no idea how to respond. It's gripped with fear and with confusion, and it seems like it would rather compromise its beliefs and its values and its morals and its identity than to give up this illusion that it has some sort of social and political power. So what does that mean? What does that mean for us? How are we to live for the welfare and the good of our city of our communities, for the good of our world. Well, I think we have to start by being true to our calling. The same calling for the Israelites, the same calling for us in Jeremiah, build houses and make yourselves at home. To put in gardens and eat what grows in this country. To marry and to have children. And encourage your children to marry and have children so that you'll thrive in this country and not waste away. To make yourselves at home and work for this country's welfare. 
to pray for this place, for its well-being. Because if things go well here for this country, things will go well for us, for you. And God's calling, we sometimes think it's only for ministers and for missionaries or for pastors, but really it's for all of us to be faithful in wherever he's placed us. You have a calling by God not only to serve inside of this campus, um, inside of this church, what, what we would think of like traditional church uh, ministry, but in whatever area, whatever job, whatever career, whatever lifestyle you have chosen to give your life to, you're called to that. You, you, we have to ask ourselves, how can I use my gifts and my passions and my talents and resources to provide for the needs of my society? I mean, this room, we have a lot of teachers, for instance. Professors, we need you to educate our students how to be faithful citizens and healthy culture makers in our society. We have business people, all the way from entry level to supervisors and CEOs, and we need you to influence your companies your workspaces to be fair and to be ethical and to treat people with dignity and respect and not objectify people just for profit. There are artists that are passionate about creating. We have musicians and writers. We have painters and builders that we would create in ways that glorify God and honor people in our communities. We have people here who are on the front lines of speaking up for issues of justice issues of reconciliation, and you have not given up on this world, but you live with the hope and knowledge that God is reconciling all things to himself. Some of you stand for and speak up and advocate for those on the margins, those who are oppressed, those who have no voice, because you believe that if Jesus spent most of his time with those people, that means that their lives actually matter. There are some of you who are ministers to your homes. There's parents who have been called to raise children who know their identity and their great value as children of God and who will bring the kingdom wherever they go. All of us, we are all called to be ministers wherever we are. And even in a nation that's so divided and confused in its identity, we cannot control the way that or the direction that our nation wants to go, we can't control the way that it chooses to speak to each other and demonize one another. But we can choose to speak with truth, but with love. To pray for each other. To forgive each other. To disagree sometimes, but with respect. Without losing sight that this is a person that's loved by God, created in his image. That we would be able to see people like Jesus sees people. Loves, love them like he loves them. And if you know Jesus, you know that he loved even the most undeserving of love. I mean, he was crazy about them. He gave his whole life. He gave everything for me and for you and for them. He just loved. That's what he did. So... Are you ready to live for the life of this world? Are you ready to give your life to see this city and this nation and this world 
flourish and prosper and his kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Is that what you desire with all your heart? You might remember, I'll finish up with this, you might remember a few years ago um, when the entire world experienced the arrival of Pope Francis. In the first days of his papacy, the world watched as he washed people's feet, he cared for the poor, he reaffirmed the basic calling of the church to be Jesus to the world. And absolutely everyone was shocked. Suddenly, we see what we didn't expect, a genuine disciple of Jesus. People took note that here's a person who doesn't represent churchly power, but who lives what the church professes to believe. This was enough to shock even Time magazine and name Pope Francis person of the year. Why? Simply because he lived as a follower of Jesus. And as it turns out, that mattered to people. See, no one is calling the church to be less like Jesus. Actually, it's quite the opposite. People want the church to look like Jesus. So it's ironic that what Pope Francis does draws such dramatic attention. What he does is meant to be the daily pervasive action of the most ordinary Christian disciple. But it's shocking because it's become so unusual. Who would have thought that someone representing the church would actually live like its rabbi, like its teacher? Who would have thought that they would actually try to live like Jesus? I mean, if his followers really lived like him, things would be so differently. If we really followed Jesus together, people would notice and things would be revolutionary, I think. It starts with us, but it doesn't end with us. We are for the world. We live into his kingdom for the life of the world. There's this um, beautiful quote that says, It is better to light a candle than to curse the darkness. And we are called to be light. We are called to be salt and light. We don't hide, we don't separate, we don't just blend in. We shine the light of Jesus to everyone, everywhere, at every moment. So let me pray. Jesus, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your love for us. And we are just... We're just coming humbly to you, knowing that um, we don't deserve anything, and yet you have called us to be faithful wherever you have placed us. We understand that your calling um, is far greater than just in these four walls, but we are to be the light of the world, that we are to shine your light so that people would know you and see you in us. If I ask that as a church, we would be able to do that faithfully, even when things are hard and messy and crazy and we don't even know how to respond, that we would just continue being your people who love this world and love the people around them.
Um, we really want that. Again, all of those things that were my thoughts, those things that don't make any sense or don't really matter, those will be quickly forgotten. Everything that's coming from you and um, everything that you want us to remember and to um, plant in our hearts, I ask that those would remain and grow and create us and uh, create in us a passion for you and for people. We pray this in your name, Jesus.